Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. And today we're going to talk about money, 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 money. What is money? <laughs> but we're going to we're going to take you to places you may never have gone before. We're going to explore new worlds of understanding about what money is and what money is not. And uh, what we've come to think is absolutely true that just ain't so. Uh, but before we start that, I want to remind everybody that they should be a part of the Living Network. And the Living Network is not just the email groups. You can go to our website at hisholychurch.org. You can go to Preparing You, and you can join the network. And if you join that network, that email network, you have not joined the Living Network. Joining the Living Network means you have to join a congregation of record. And when I say join it, I mean assemble with it. I don't mean become a member, you know, a card-carrying member of some sort of corporate organization or association, but simply in a free assembly congregate with other people because most of the information, most of the communication on our network is through the living network. Most of the progress towards the kingdom is done through the living network. It is not done on the email networks. A lot of our email groups seem uh, amazingly quiet. It's because people who are actually participating and working are in the living network. They have actually assembled with congregations. Now, obviously, our message, even though we try to send it out to the whole world, we're not on major, major media, uh, at least not too often. And uh, it is uniquely different from what people are commonly thinking as the message of Christ. Because most modern Christians are under a strong delusion because they have believed at least one major lie, if not numerous major lies. They, they One lie is that they think religion is what they think about God. And that's a modern definition of religion. It, it, it did exist even back in the days of Jesus Christ, but not with Jesus Christ, not with James. James said religion is how you take care of the needy of your society, and it's only pure religion if you do it unspotted by the world. I talked to somebody from Minnesota last night who was at least seeing the fact that if you go to a church service, you get no service, unless what you want to get is your ears tickled. Because they will tickle your ears. They'll tell you that you're saved. They'll tell you that you're wonderful, that God loves you. He, they won't talk about the fact that Jesus hates the de and God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans and the, therefore the deeds of Balaam, which is the deeds of most modern Christians. Because most modern Christians do not gather for the practice of pure religion. They gather for the purposes of feeling good about the fact that they practice impure religion, public religion. They pray to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Please, please, great father in Washington, great father in Ontario, great father in Sydney, take away from my neighbors so that I may have more stuff. Take away from my children 
and my grandchildren and my neighbor's grandchildren so that I can have stuff today. I wish to rest today. I want your benefits today. I want to eat at your table today. So please take away from others. I don't even know so that I may have more stuff, more benefits. That's what is going on in every nation of the world. And that is anti-Christ. And that is Balaam. That is the way of the Nicolaitan. And God hates that. And that's what you're doing. And you need to repent of that. Now, Jesus gave out loaves and fishes. He fed the masses. Exactly how that all took place, we don't really know. They don't go into detail. But there is some detail that most people don't know. That they're completely unaware of. You could probably go to a hundred pastors and ask the pastor, what did Jesus make the people do or have his disciples make the people do? Jesus commanded that his disciples make the people do something before they were going to get any loaves and fishes. You could go and ask a hundred pastors that, and they will not know. You'd be lucky if you got one in a hundred that would actually know what Jesus commanded that his disciples, his trainee ministers, do, make the people do, before they will receive loaves and fishes. Now, supposedly there were 5,000 people there. Uh, 5,000 men, it says. So that it could have been, there are estimates that it could have been 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people there. Because they would not have counted children or women amongst men. So even if there was only 5,000, that's a lot for 12 guys to hand out loaves and fishes to. But for some reason or other, everybody ate and there was stuff left over. But before they ate, the disciples were commanded to make the people sit down in companies upon companies. It actually uses the word twice there in the Greek. We only see it once in the uh, in, in the uh, English translation, but he actually says it twice. Sit down in companies and companies. And then those companies sit in ranks of fifties and one hundreds. Well, this is much like a company, by the way, is a symposia. A symposia is a small group of people like uh, buddies, maybe eight, nine, ten people, eight, nine, ten men would sit down in groups of ten and those groups would be gathered together in ranks of fifties and hundreds. Now how did they do that? Well you go back to ancient times at the time of Moses and you'll see that Moses had done the same thing at the recommendation of Jethro who did not come up with the idea himself. The idea was around even before Nimrod it was around in the days of Abraham. It was around in ancient and ancient times of the people gathering in ten fifties and hundreds. It was still around at the time of Rome. The Teutons gathered in that way and were able to muster an army almost overnight that was able to defeat the entire Roman legion down to the last man. 
because they gathered in these tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And Jesus commanded that his apostles make the people. These are the words in the text, in the biblical text. You go to your churches. They don't even know about this. It's right in the Bible, but they don't do it. And we have people that we've helped over the years uh, with medical bills, with rent, with payments of uh, power bills and what have you. And uh, they know that we are organizing a network the way Jesus commanded his disciples to organize the people in. What they did on Pentecost, what they did at Feast of Tabernacles. That's, this is why they had these big gatherings, is to shore up that network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And Jesus is clearly commanding, very seldom do we see Jesus, we see him commanding demons out of people, but commanding his disciples, make the people sit down in this pattern that was as ancient as man himself. And yet your churches don't do this. And yet we, and we have been preaching this for decades now, and we have people in the email network that are not doing this. They are not gathering in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Yet they want to eat the loaves and fishes. They want to come in to the wedding feast. But they will not put on the wedding garment. What is the wedding garment? Jesus came to serve. You come to the wedding and you're a part of the wedding party. You put on the wedding garments. In other words, the character of Christ. You gather together to serve. So yes, we do not have ten family congregations in every city throughout the land. But that's partly the fault of the people making excuses. Why well, I don't really, you know, I don't want to gather. I don't want to assemble. I don't. Uh, I got to go do this. I got to go do that. And Jesus talks about this, about people not wanting to do what needs to be done in order to be a free society under God. So stop making excuses and start gathering. And as you gather in one ten group, even though. You might have everybody in your group is actually living in a different state. Okay. So, expand the network. Be there. Had somebody wanted to gather with people in Kentucky. I've met all kinds of people from Kentucky. But they're not gathering in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. So, when he says there's nobody here in Kentucky, that's not true. But there's nobody there in Kentucky that is gathering in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Nobody's doing that. That we know of. In a network designed the way Christ said to design your network. To sit down in this network. And so, so does he join a congregation? Well, as far as I know, he hasn't done that yet. Hasn't joined a congregation yet. So now when the next guy comes to me and says, is there anybody in Kentucky? I will not be able to tell him because I can't remember that guy's name. I don't know his phone number. I don't know his address. I'm not going to write his his name down and his email down under Kentucky so that, oh yeah, there is a guy over here. 
I, that's not the way it works. You got to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And then, you know, I, I will know ten ministers. That's all I have to know is ten ministers. And I will tell one of those ten ministers, I will tell all of them. I say, well, who's covering Kentucky? And then they can say, well, Steve's in Kentucky. And then somebody gets a hold of Steve. And Steve says, well, we got 20 congregations in Kentucky. Uh, where's this guy near? And we tell him. And then he puts him in touch with that nearby group. But if you just expect me to remember thousands of people and their names, God has not given me the ability to remember people's names. I guarantee you. And there's a reason why. Because Christ didn't say, love your ministers. You know, love Joe Olstein. <laughs> you know, if you don't go to church next week at Joe Olstein's, you go there this week and you feel the love and you don't go next week, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody's even going to know you're not there. You could be dead rotten in your apartment. Nobody's going to know. Because Joe Olstein is not telling people to sit down into the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And why do you do that? Because Jesus said to love one another, not love your pastors. Now, obviously, you if you have a pastor, you can certainly love that pastor. But your pastors should be getting you to sit down to love one another. Your pastor's congregation is not you. Your pastor's congregation is his his congregation of nine other pastors. That's the way the kingdom works. If you think it doesn't work that way, it's because you have believed a lie. That's the way it works. The congregation of the minister is the ministers he congregates with. He comes to your congregation of people. We got people that after after years of explaining this, Go and pick a minister, and they don't know anybody in his congregation. They just pick a minister because they like him and he, he talks nice to them. Completely the opposite of what Christ has been saying. So anyway, if you go to our website, look up the Free Church Report at Preparing You. Uh, we have a table of contents of every chapter in in that book about how the Free Church is organized. And we're up to uh, uh, chapter 30 now. We just did a study on it. And we have an hour study on this. And we show you what I just told you. So you can go there. And and there's audios there that you can download or you can listen while you read the article. And you can start finding out what Christ actually said. But I told you we were going to talk about money. And we haven't started talking about money. Well, I'm going to start quoting a book. It's the history of global stock market from ancient Rome to Silicon Valley. If you go to uh, page 116, you can read about Bruce Barton. Bruce Barton, a consummate salesman and a pioneer of modern advertisement uh, techniques, published a book entitled The Man Nobody Knows. And he doesn't know how true that is. <laughs> well, what man is he talking about? Well, Barton's subject, surprisingly, was none other than Jesus Christ. Barton argued that Christ, far from being a dreamer only, 
uh, interested in spiritual affairs, had been the first businessman. Well, I think that's a gross exaggeration, but he goes on to qualify that. Uh, whose parables, he says, was the most powerful advertisement of all time. Okay, well, now he's trying to make a point. But in the, this other book, it's actually by uh, B. Mark Smith, The History of Global Stock Markets from Ancient Rome to Silicon Valley. You didn't know that Rome had a stock market, huh? <laughs> well, it, it did have a sort of stock, stock market. And actually, uh, all of the Roman Empire had these almost what you could call stock exchanges. Uh, they didn't work exactly like the ones we have today, but similarly. But we're going to go through both so that you understand and money, because that's what I said I was going to talk about. Because you got to have some form of money in order to have a stock market. but uh, And then the stock market itself becomes a form of money. But anyway, he he went on to talk about this Jesus. Christ was, according to Barton, a man who picked up 12 men from the bottom ranks of business and forged them into an organization that conquered the world. Now, we just did another study on, uh, I guess you could call him a theologian who's done a lot of writing back in the early 20s at this same period of time. That that was, Barton's book was back, it was the best-selling book uh, in the United States in 1924. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it, it was a powerfully influential book talking about this idea of advertising. And so, you know, we're advertising something. We're advertising the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But that's not real popular with a lot of people. But one of the problems is people can't quite understand what the kingdom of God and his righteousness is. And part of the reason you can't understand it is I can't tell you, which is why Jesus talked in parables. He was sparking the imagination of people so that they could kind of understand. Now, what's happening in the world today is money has been deflating for quite some time. Uh, well, there's been deflation and inflation. And uh, so, when I say sometime, over a period of time, these things take place. I mean, during the Depression, a dime went a long way. But during the Depression, a dime was silver. But since then, we've had a lot of inflation. I mean, if you made $10,000 in a year, you were wealthy back during the Depression. That was a huge amount. I mean, you could buy three homes for $10,000. Furnished homes for $10,000. With real wood. No no plastic in it. You know, I mean, real uh, maple, oak, everything. For $10,000. So if you made $10,000 in a year. You wouldn't even need a mortgage to buy a house. You'd just pay for it outright. You'd buy your car outright. You wouldn't borrow any money to do this. Uh, now. Today. You have to borrow money for 20 years. 30 years paying it off. To have a house that's not nearly as well built. So. So what's happening. What what's what's changing? You know, back then when you were buying that loaf, of, you could buy a loaf of bread for a nickel. Or, or there were actually times when you could buy three loaves of bread for a dime. Actually, if you go all the way back to Benjamin Franklin, 
You could buy three loaves of bread for a penny. <laughs> Amazing, but it was an actual... Now, a penny was a little bigger then, but it was an actual copper penny. But uh, all that's changing. What's actually changing? The value of bread or the value of the penny? Well, actually, it's the value of the penny. As a matter of fact, you can't make pennies out of copper anymore because a copper pennies worth three to four cents. <laughs> so it doesn't pay to make it. So you have to coin zinc pennies. But anyway, we'll talk more about that later and, and how that all works. I just wanted to bring up the fact that in a book about global stock markets, they're talking about Jesus Christ <laughs> creating a system through advertisement that conquered the world. And I disagree with the fact that these uh, these men were at the bottom ranks of business. They in those days they were they were in the lower ranks of business to some degree, at least uh, most of them. But they were well-to-do men of their time. They weren't the fabulously wealthy. There was these hugely fabulously wealthy people at the time. You know, like uh, is it Elon Musk? And we'll actually talk a little bit about Elon Musk here in a minute. And and uh, his SpaceX, because this brings in interesting concepts that actually correlate to the time of Rome. Uh, you know, he's going into outer space with rocket ships that return. What was Rome doing that was like that? He has a multi-billion dollar company. They actually refer to it as a unicorn company. And if you're familiar with your business terminologies... It's actually a decacom. <laughs> it's not a unicorn. But uh, they use unicorn kind of uh, across the board. And we'll explain what that is. But uh, today, with our paper money, our credit cards, which doesn't even involve paper money, internet banking, e-commerce, that doesn't involve anything but electrons, uh, we have a sophisticated investment systems all over the world. And one of those sophisticated investment systems through the stock market is called a unicorn. Uh, and if, a unicorn is basically a startup company valued at least at $1 billion. Uh, a decacom is one that is uh, valued at $10 billion. A hecticom is, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, $100 billion. And so forth. And so, these are businesses. These are corporate investment brokerages, all regulated by uh, uh, laws of the Senate and Congress in the United States, at least here in the United States. And you can invest in them. And they call them unicorn investments, generally speaking. And there's a danger of what they call a, un a unicorn bubble. But we'll talk more about that. And what that has to do with Rome and what that has to do with Jesus Christ and Christianity. <laughs> because it seems like we're a long ways away from the message of Christ here. But actually, we're going to tie them together and you have a better picture of what Christianity is all about.
So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, I mentioned SpaceX, uh, which is uh, this uh, company started by uh, Elon Musk, who's taking rocket ships into space and and uh, bringing them back down again and landing them and uh, and reusing them. Very uh, interesting uh, private enterprise that is actually making some money and he's also got the Tesla car and uh, Tesla truck and everything amazing uh things that because he's this billionaire and he's able to do this I thought maybe he got his money from uh the fact that he was from uh, a wealthy family in South Africa but actually he's from a very poor family <laughs> and uh he's become this billionaire uh on his own time and uh, with his own efforts uh, amazing uh story but uh, he, he, one of his big fears of putting SpaceX on the stock market, which is what you do is you put, put a company on the stock market. You sell shares in the company. People buy shares in those companies, that company from the company itself. And those shares have a value. And the company takes that money when it sells those shares and invests it in what they're doing. Whatever it is they're manufacturing or making or, you know, how they're making money. They're doing, they're, they're selling those shares to get capital to make more money. And, uh, this is the, the people who buy those shares are investors. That's the original idea of the stock market. Now, what happens in the stock market is people begin to trade the shares and a share goes up in value in the minds of people. Doesn't really, there's no more company. There's no more, uh, land, there's no more buildings, there's no more uh, machinery to manufacture stuff. It just goes up in value because people think it's going to go up in value and they call it speculation. And so as it goes up in value, more and more people buy that stock for higher and higher prices. Now, if you put your some stock on the stock market, you know, uh, 10% of your stock on the stock market. And uh, and you sell it, and it starts... go That 10%, because there's not very much of those shares out there, starts going up in value. Then you can sell the next 10% of shares at a real high, high price. And then it goes up in value some more. And then you sell the next 10 And eventually, you could sell 100% of the shares in the company... At a very, very, very high price. And then the company goes bankrupt and everybody loses their money. <laughs> or not. It may not. But this is this is what investment does. That there's this speculation. And one of the things that Elon Musk was worried about is that the the company would sell so much stock that it would be taken over by other people who would only want to make a profit. And his dream is to create a colony on Mars. He wants to create a colony, a human colony of people living sustainably on Mars, another planet way out there in space, which is an ambitious idea, to say the least. <laughs> but anyway, that's his goal. And uh, or at least that's what he says his goal is. Maybe his goal is to, is to drive up the price of SpaceX stock and sell it for billions and billions of dollars and everybody, and then the bubble collapses. Who knows? But that's for you to figure out. But anyway, there is this unicorn bubble uh, because of e-commerce. But there's an e-commerce bubble that could collapse. 
I mean, people talk about Bitcoin and all these things. Everything is dependent upon an electronic, electronic society. A society where electricity and the currents of electricity are flowing, circulating, so to speak, around the country. And that is the circulation of those electrons, the flowing of the national and international electron, uh, electric grid is as much a part of e-commerce as anything else. That's not the kind of money that started the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire didn't start as an empire. It started as Rome. Uh, the Latins, the, they call it Rome. Rome actually is a Greek word that means whole. Uh, these were proudly individualistic people who came together in tribes. Actually, they came together in a, a pattern similar to the tens, hundreds, fifties, and thousands. Uh, they called them hearths. A small group was called a hearth. And it was families who came together in free association, which is really a free assembly. And uh, they uh, formed these network groups. And eventually they organized their army very much the same way. And you see that with their leaders being called uh, Dechens, uh, leader of ten. And then eventually they had uh, centurions, which were hundreds so and thousands. And so that's how they organized their society. Their army was totally a militia army. It was an unpaid army. They didn't, they didn't receive wages. They gathered together for the defense of their community. And that was an honorable thing to do, to come to the defense of your community. They had almost no coinage whatsoever in early Rome. I mean, Rome really began as a republic, became a republic in 500 B.C., 500 years before Christ. And they did this by throwing out the Tarquinian kings and setting up this republic. They had a senate almost right away, but that senate could make no laws. Very important. Why? What, what's the point of having a senate if it couldn't make any laws? Uh, what, what's its job? A senate actually means old men. It's a gathering of old men. It's a gathering of trusted old men. And where did they come from? They came from these tens, hundreds, and thousands. And uh, this is, uh, you know, they had the same thing in the tithing men. And, and they would eventually get up to this higher, uh, almost like a Wiccan group. Uh, I don't think I'm saying the word quite right. But it, it, this group of elderly men who were in England, they couldn't make laws. They weren't kings, but they were part of this organizational system. It, we call it the Sanhedrin in Israel. They had the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Eventually, they had these 12 high priests, one from each of the 12 tribes. And this was basically before the Sanhedrin. This is what they had as a Sanhedrin. They weren't making laws. The laws were already made. But they were a part of a governmental system that had no king. No, there were no kings. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. And if he had his eyes on God, he would gather together and they would defend one another. They would help one another. If there was a flood, there was a famine, they would be there for one another. So they never had to go back to Egypt again, back to the pharaohs who would bring them back into bondage. They would help one another if there was a... They didn't have money for a power bill. They didn't have money to pay a medical bill. They didn't have uh, 
any place to go and the, their, the land where they lived was flooded. Or the Fukushima went off and they had to evacuate the radiation. <laughs> whatever it is, invading army, whatever. They had a network of people they could go to that the basis of that network was charity, love for one another. They would help you out. They'd help you get started somewhere else. And they would be there for you. In order to have that efficiently, people had to sit down in those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. If they didn't do that, they wouldn't know where to go. They wouldn't know who to contact. I mean, Paul knew who to contact when he went uh, to Syria and to Greece and to these different places because they had a network. They had this network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. This is how the early church was organized. It's not how the Church of Constantine organized. But it is how the Church of Christ organized. And see, today, your modern churches don't organize like Christ said, commanded his ministers to organize the people. Because the modern church is the Church of Constantine. The Reformation was not reforming the Church of Christ. It was reforming the Church of Constantine. And it only reformed it back. Although, I will admit, some of the early Protestant churches did organize in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Not very many. Most because that it was part of that process of changing the definition of religion from what you do to your the fulfillment of your duty to what you think about God. And this, of course, is why there were all these religious wars where people were killing each other over their opinion about Christ and God. Because this group had a different opinion about Christ and God. They thought they had the right to drive them out of their homes, steal their property, and even kill them. And they did this to the tunes of the deaths of millions upon millions of people. It was that Christianity that would do that that was under this reform. Because you'll find people, both uh, the uh, uh, the Catholic Inquisition and the Protestant Inquisition persecuting and killing people. Even the Baptists. I mean, the, the atrocities that some of the Baptist groups... Now, I don't want to put everybody into these these labels, but there was a Baptist group that seized a city, took over a city, and killed tens of thousands of people because they did not conform to their opinion about God, their religious opinion about God. That, that of course, is completely anti-Christ. And yet, there were Baptists who were doing it. Now, I'm not going to put all Baptists in that group, but the reality is, what is exactly... A Christian. What is a real follower of Christ? What was the early church doing? Well, partly to know that, you need to understand what the world was doing. And what world do we mean? The constitutional orders and systems of governments of the people back then. What was Rome doing? Now, we talk about the history of Rome. And there was Rome, the Republic... And there was Rome, the empire. The first 500 years of Rome, from 500 B.C. till Christ, was basically Rome, the republic. It was going through transition, but it was Rome, the republic. At the time of Christ's birth, 
we're dealing with Rome, the empire, because Augustus Caesar, the first Caesar, had already seized control after a uh, civil war. And things were drastically changing. And along comes this uh, first businessman, according to uh, <laughs> Bruce Barton, <laughs> Jesus Christ and his parables, and uh, which he called this powerful advertisement of uh, the most powerful advertisement of all times. And these 12 guys, and actually it was more than 12 guys. There were 12 apostles, but there were 120 men in the upper room or names in the upper room. So that's your tens and hundreds. Uh, those ten, uh, those twelve apostles were representative of the twelve tribes. These would become the new twelve tribes. And there were a number of churches. There was one church, but there were a number of uh, divisions of that church under each of the apostles, which moved out into different directions. James was in Jerusalem. Uh, assumedly, we have the idea that Peter went to Rome. But the point was, is that each of these 12 had 10 ministers that he served that were in a congregation of 10 ministers, which is why you have the 120 names in the upper room. At Pentecost, this number multiplied as the apostles continued to obey the command of Christ and organize the people, make them organize in tens, in companies of tens, and ranks of fifties and hundreds. That word ranks in that same uh, part of the Bible is repeated twice in the Greek text, but you only see it once. It's because, why twice? Because he was creating that network. I've had people over the years constantly tell me, Oh, Jesus didn't create a network. He not only created a network, he commanded that his disciples make the people sit down in that very network of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Now, you're going to have to go look that up. <laughs> We've given you the opportunity. We show you where it is. Uh, and then you're going to have to decide, am I even doing anything that Christ said? I'm doing what Joel Osteen said, but I'm not doing what Christ said. I'm doing what Billy Graham said. I had my altar call, but I'm not going to sit down in tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands like Jesus commanded. <laughs> but I'm going to call myself a Christian, and I expect loaves and fishes when I need help. Well, guess what? You didn't come together in the name of Christ yet. So don't tell me about that. If you want to know where to look that up, in the Bible, go look it up in Mark six thirty-eight. It's in other places too, but Mark six thirty-eight tells you the clearest uh, rendition of that. And they didn't harp on this throughout the Bible uh, and throughout the New Testament because they all knew. Like I told you, it's co- was common knowledge for the people of the time. They knew what the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands are. They knew what free governments were, and they knew what. Augustus's imperial Rome was. The problem is today your modern Christian has more in common with the Romans and with the Pharisees than they have with the early church because they aren't doing what the early church was doing. They aren't doing what Christ commanded that they do. So, you know, by the end of this program, everybody should go to the network, go to org, 
and sign up on the email groups. Let them know on the email groups, I want to join a congregation. And I want to call and talk to those people on that congregation or meet with them every week. And I want to be, when the, when the, uh, uh, His Holy Church missionaries travel through your community, I want to host them. I want, I want to provide for the, their presence there. I mean, they're self-contained. They don't, they don't need you, but they're coming to serve in the name of Christ because that's what Christ came to do. They, they came to serve. Now, if you don't do that and you put that off, then, well, we got a couple parables for you on that. <laughs> so, so let's go back to Rome, the Republic. Well, the early Republic of Rome didn't coin any money. Now, they had commodity money. And what is commodity money? Commodity money is money that's value is based in the commodity itself. It's, and it doesn't need to necessarily be coined. And we'll explain more about why I say that. But it might look like a coin. And it might have some markings on it. But those markings are based on what is in the coin. It's, this is so much gold. This is so much silver. It's what the Old Testament calls just weights and measures. Well, is gold and silver and bronze and copper and brass the only commodity monies that there are? No. Any commodity is a commodity money. I could bring you ten sheep. And that that's commodity money. <laughs> you know, I could bring you uh, uh, a sack of wheat. A modius of wheat. A Roman modius of wheat was about 30 pounds. And that's money. Early America, they didn't always have enough coins to make, do business. So they used sacks of grain. As, you know, I, I'm bringing in grain. And, they, you know, the storekeeper would put the grain in the back room. He'd take a look at it. He'd give, he'd give you a value for that. And he might even list the value in, in silver coin. But he doesn't give you the silver coin. He gives you credit. Because he doesn't have the silver coin. He gives you credit on stuff in the store. and But he's basing it on the value of a silver coin at that time to him. and uh, And he makes a trade. Now, if you're trading with the Indians, it might be, you know, you have wampum out there, a blanket. You know, give me these many furs, I give you this blanket. Give me these many furs, I give you this axe. Give me these many furs, and I'll give you this. And so, all those things on the the table there are commodity money. A a bag of tobacco, commodity money. Uh, A stack of furs, commodity money. Uh, Axe heads, uh, axe handles. Commodity money. You know, that's... Uh, the Indians did this. They used uh, uh, spear points and arrowheads as commodity money. Widows could sit there and chip arrowheads and make arrowheads all day. And when a, a Indian came back with a, a deer or an elk or whatever, uh, she could give him an arrowhead and he would give her meat. And she could eat. <laughs> so they they were that's she was the mint she was minting the money she didn't have to stamp on it a value they could look at it and they knew the value of it and they made a trade and so that's commodity money and that's just weights and measures is 
you know, so much grain, 30 pounds of grain. So we, we put that value on it. Well, they also made whiskey money in early America because it was hard to transport a thousand pounds of grain over the hills of the Appalachian. So they turned the grain into whiskey, put it into barrels, which they made barrels too. There's a guy there making barrels uh, out of the wood that was there on that west side of the Appalachian. And they would fill it up with whiskey and they would take a wagon load of whiskey, which was the equivalent of like 10 or 12 wagon loads of grain in buying power. People actually who didn't drink a drop of whiskey would trade in whiskey because it had a value and it kept. It didn't go bad. Grain could go bad. But whiskey didn't usually go bad. It got better. (laughs) Aging in the barrel. Uh, The same is true of gold and silver. It doesn't go bad. It doesn't burn up in the fire. It's still there. And so the Romans traded in gold and silver. They traded in iron. Uh, They would uh, mine iron and and, and, and trade with uh, the people in Gaul and the people up where, in Germany. And they would actually take iron and take it up to Norway and Sweden by boat. And they would trade with the Norwegians who would take the iron and smelt, uh, you know, uh, armaments and tools with them. And then so they would bring in you know, 500 pounds of iron and take home 100 pounds of of tools and arms and armaments and helmets that were made. And so now they could transport that same value and it weighed less and they'd take it back to uh, uh, Germany or Gaul and trade it off. And if the workmanship was good, the value was increasing. This is how they made, this is how commerce was held. But about, 290, 280, Rome began to actually mint coins and they got the idea of doing it from the Greeks. But they didn't do it for the same reason as the Greeks. Now, to just give you a little heads up, all the Greeks didn't do it for the same reason either. <laughs> uh, in, in Sparta, for example, gold and silver coins was illegal. You were not allowed to own gold and silver coins <laughs> uh, for the Spartans or for the uh, 80% of the population who were not Spartans but were oppressed by the Spartans who were a bunch of Nazis. <laughs> so anyway, which is another story. The Spartans were very loyal, very militaristic, but they oppressed most of the people who lived in Sparta. Uh And they did not allow them to have gold and silver coins because there was power in that. And so their coins were made out of lead. A base metal had no value whatsoever. So if you live in a country where they're taking the gold and silver out of the coins, figure you're headed the way of Sparta. (laughs) You're headed towards a Nazi regime. Which we know, of course, also you would see the evidence of socialism popping up because that's what Nazis were. They were national socialists. And so if they're taking gold and silver out of your coin, they're following in the spirit of Nazism. And you you know where you're headed. So you can now predict the future without a crystal ball. <laughs> and of course, you're already in that future. So 
Uh, enough said about that. But anyway, to stay on the topic. So, uh, they had, the, they minted gold and silver coins in Rome, but they usually did it in commemoration of some sort of political or military event. And why in this political or military event, what, why were they minting the coin? They had an unpaid army, so it wasn't to pay the army. So what was it all about? Well, we'll tell you when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. So I'll hold you in suspense till then. Be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we were talking about money, 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 money. And uh, where did it come from? What is it? What is it not? What should it be? What is the real value that we're dealing with uh, when we talk about things like money? I mean, where did even the word money come from? It actually comes from a a uh, temple of uh, Moneta, which is actually the temple of Juno Moneta, which is... Two different gods given the same coin. <laughs> Which is like, how, how's that going to work? You got two different gods that had the same coin. And why, why do that? What, what is the metaphor of that idea? But anyway, we'll talk about that later. Uh, we were talking about Rome and the Roman Empire. And these are two different things. We talk about Rome, but for the first 500 years, Rome was a republic. Before Rome was a republic, Israel was a republic. I mean, you can look that up in encyclopedias. It says that Israel was the first republic. I mean, even before some of the Greek city-states, uh, Israel was a republic. Well, it really wasn't the first republic, but in recorded history, is one of the earliest forms of a republic. No king, no president, the high priest, which was equivalent to their senate, uh, could not pass no laws. Uh, they couldn't muster an army. They couldn't draft the people. Uh, they couldn't take from the people. Now, they could receive from the people, but they couldn't take from the people. I had somebody telling me the other day, one of these ignorant pastors telling me that, oh, no, they had to tithe. I said, so what was the punishment for not tithing? Did you go to jail? Did you have your goods confiscated? <laughs> well, no, God said you had to tithe. Yeah, but, but men didn't say you had to tithe. There was no enforcement. Even the Ten Commandments, they don't have any enforcement. Uh, you know, you don't go to jail because you didn't honor your father and your mother. Uh, you don't get penalized. Your days won't be long upon the land, but that they're just telling you, if you don't do these things, bad things will happen. If you live by the sword, you will be under the sword. If you bite one another, you will be devoured. They're telling you principles of a cause and effect universe. They're not imposing fines and uh, legal uh, limitations upon you because God is the God of heaven. He's the God of creation. His fines, his penalties are built into creation itself. And he's telling you how to be free souls under his authority rather than go under the authority of Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, 
and anybody else you want to elect as a ruler over you. So in a republic, there is no such ruler that the power of the state in a pure republic is in the hands of the individual and uh, therefore the individual family. Uh, the family was created by God and by the the nature of God. You know, one man, one woman, children, that's a family. And those children grow up. They have children. Until the grandfather dies, that's one family. Because he's still there. And so that's a unit. That's a natural corporation. uh, Under the pre-existing authority of the God of nature. The God of creation. But that family can take some of its rights and contract them away into other groups. He can elect a king. He can elect a ruler. He can elect a senate. He can give that senate power to make laws. In the original Roman Republic, the senate had no power to make laws. There was no king. There was no even proconsul. So, where was the power? The power was in the hands of the individual, and the individual was the state. It was literally the the, the early Roman Republic. They were all statists. But the state rested in the hands of every individual. That's a pure republic. Now, when you create a constitutional republic, where you take some of the power that's in the hands of the individual and you put it into the hands of a Congress or a Senate or a president, then that constitutional republic is no longer a pure republic. It's a constitutional republic. And some of the power rests in the hands of of these other entities, these corporate entities. And they're incorporated by the people who create such corporations. So who created the corporation of the United States federal government? That's a that's an important question. I have to adjust my microphone here. <laughs> who, who incorporated the United States? Was it the people of America? No, they didn't incorporate the government of the United States, those those guys who signed the Constitution, they began the process of incorporation with their signature. But they could only sign for themselves. They couldn't even sign for the individual states. They weren't delegated the power to create a new government. They were just supposed to be a fact-finding group to find out what we could do to improve the Articles of Confederation. That's just basic history that most people don't know. So, who incorporated the United States. Well, it was all the senators that were elected and the congressmen that were elected. When they signed on, the individual states signed on and sent their delegates, they were creating a corporation under the authority of the states. So the United States was a corporation under the authority of the individual state governments, which most of the individual state governments were republics. So, do we see a problem here? Is that what we have today? No, in reality, that's not what we have today because uh, the the United States is now a separate corporation. And this all took place during our Civil War where the federal governments are now dictating to the states. And now how come they dictate to the states? Because of revenue sharing. You don't get any federal revenue. 
And because the citizens of the states are not citizens of the states, they're citizens of the United States, and they're residents of their individual states. They used to be citizens of the individual states. Now they're citizens of the United States and residents of their individual states. Now that may be getting too complicated for a lot of you to follow, but the point is, is there was vast changes in the American Republic to the point where now the American Republic is virtually because of the abandonment of the people has become an indirect democracy. And it's becoming an indirect social democracy. <laughs> Vast, quickly, has been since about 1910. And uh, you can see, if you if you actually study the law and the history of the law, you can actually see how the nature of the courts was changing around 1911, 1910, uh, the the relationship of the citizens to the United States was changing around 1933. Uh, our money began to change uh, back in 1916. Uh, at least what we were using as money, the, the introduction of national legal tender, I should say federal legal tender, because that wasn't really national anymore. It was federal uh, from the Federal Reserve, which wasn't really national. But anyway, all these things are taking place and it's morphing the structure of government, the structure of the economy, and therefore the structure of society itself. So if we go back to Rome and take a look at what was going on in Rome. And the reason I started talking about all this is because of the fact that I was trying to, uh, I was going to try to answer something I've said many times before is that uh, uh, Caesar loaned money into circulation. And now originally, now Caesar wasn't the beginning of coinage in Rome. There was no Caesar when Rome began to coin money. And this is what I was saying at the end of the last program, is that they were coining money in commemoration of events. And uh, you would see some sort of symbol on the coin that related to a particular success, uh, some sort of political or, or military success. And uh, there were other uh, coins that were issued. And they don't always know why, but they would have pictures of different gods and stuff like that. But we don't know what they were doing in the temples. This is one of the big problems. And we're going to explore that to understand. The Temple of Saturn is where they kept birth certificates. Birth certificates, you say? Why Why the Temple of Saturn? What were they doing in the Temple of Moneta? Uh, Juno Moneta. Uh, the full name is Juno Moneta. Well, they were minting coins. Well, what else did they do in there that that was not just minting coins? All the records of the, the, the magistrates, the decisions of judges. And by the way, the word judges there would be the word for gods, magistrates. The records, their decisions were kept in the temple of Moneta. So, so why is the, in the, the mint... Are they keeping the judicial records of magistrates? What's going on? How, what, what's happening there? Uh, how about the Temple of Janus? What was uh, what were they doing in the Temple of Janus? This is that two-faced god, you know, where you have the head on one side, uh, face on one side, and the face on the other side, almost like uh, uh, something out of Riddick. Um, the uh, what what was going on in that temple? Well, did you know that there wasn't a temple <laughs> at the Temple of Janus? It was actually a walled-in area with two gates. 
There was an in gate and an out gate. And that was it. That was all that was there. Why is that? Well, did you know that the word temple originally didn't refer to a building? The word temple referred to an area. And in that area, there might be an altar. So what were they doing in these places? They would go there and they would they would do stuff. Where's the record? What's happening in these places? Now, obviously, when you had the Temple of Saturn and they're storing stuff in that, they had a building. And what were they storing in that? Birth certificates. Uh, if you came from another country and you were an ambassador, they would put your ambassador records there that would be that you're in this country based on the fact that you're an ambassador from another country or you're a foreigner that is traveling into this country to do business in Rome. And they made it very convenient to do business in Rome because there was that was Rome didn't do anything unless it meant somebody was going to make money. <laughs> There had to be a value in it. Uh, you know, what's in it for me? The, uh, it was probably a phrase started by Romans. They, that was their plan. So, what were they doing in all these temples, which were really government buildings, government locations originally? What did they do before they even built the walls of Janus? What did they do before they built the walls of Moneta? How were they doing things? How were they keeping records? They didn't need birth certificates. The records was kept in the individual hearths in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. In the families themselves, you'll find uh, carved in stone, little stone. You know, like they'd find a, a piece of jasper or something, and they will carve a family name in that stone. And then they will carve another family name in the same stone. And they may carve this, uh, it was common to carve the stone in the picture of a uh, of a hand and then they would carve these two family names in it and it would it was to commemorate the fact that this family really helped this family out and so they would have this was called a hospitality stone in other words you could show that stone to that to that family a hundred years later and they would invite you into their house to stay <laughs> And they would feed you. And they would take care of you. They would bring you into their house. If if you had that stone, you could take this and show this. They would do it with rings as well. You know, they'd show this ring. And, and that because there were alliances with families based upon favors that were done a century or more before, you were going to be welcomed into that home. We don't have that concept now. I tell a story about my relatives in North Dakota from time to time, if you've heard that, I won't repeat it, but uh, where generations later, uh, you know, second, third generations later, will do anything for members of my family because of something my great-grandfather did or my grandfather did. Uh, that was common, I understood. That was a value Doing things for other people with value. So, what's the difference between a donation and an investment? An investment usually is done to obtain a a extra return. Get back your investment plus interest. A donation is actually done for the same reason, but it is operating in another realm. It's not operating in the realm of... Uh, 
economic commerce. It's operating in the realm of spiritual commerce. So somebody, you know, when my grandfather did what he did for the storekeepers in Granora, North Dakota, he wasn't thinking about me. He was thinking about doing right by them. But generations later, they're thinking of doing right by me because of what he did. There's no contract involved. But this is, in essence, what investing in the kingdom of God is all about. Because the kingdom of God is spiritual. But then again, the law is spiritual. It's when you try to make the law contractual that you get away from the spiritual realm. And you get into the realm of Cain, Nimrod, Pharaoh, and Caesar. Now, connect these dots if you can. We'll talk more about this from several different points of view. But if you're seeking the kingdom of God, which is spiritual, you're creating obligations in the spiritual realm. You do that with donations. And it's really hard to let go of saying, well, wait a minute, I donated this and I donated that and I want it. You guys should take care of me because I, I sent you 20 bucks every month for six months. And now I want $600. <laughs> wait a minute. You want, you, you want the, your, your, for six months you sent 20 bucks. So doing that math quickly, that's 120 bucks. And now you want 600 bucks back because <laughs> of your donation. I'm sorry. Uh, you're not using kingdom math very good. <laughs> For one thing, you're trying to apply uh, contractual commerce with spiritual commerce. It's not, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, so we cast our bread upon the waters in hopes it comes back. But we cast it where Christ says to cast it. And Christ gave out his loaves and fishes to those who were willing to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and fifties, and thousands. uh, And not to those who said, I don't want to sit down in the tens, hundreds, fifties, and thousands. But I want loaves and fishes now. (laughs) You can't have them. I'm sorry. You're not only can't have them, we're going to tie you up and throw you out in the utter darkness, as his other parable said. (laughs) We're going to lock the door against you foolish virgins who would not enter into the kingdom of God or the ways of Christ or the commands of Christ. And so you're out. Now, you know, we've helped people out who wouldn't join, uh, but we will not persevere with them forever. They need to repent and actually start doing what Christ commanded and start gathering. So anyway, back to this minting of silver coins. So the Romans were minting these coins back in, you know, 290, 280, 267. There were different mints that came out because of historical events in the Roman history where they had great victories. Well, where did they get the gold to mint those coins? They came in. Now, they had leaders. And... uh you know, they would go and they would fight these battles and they would win these battles and they would take the spoils and they had leaders that would take these spoils and they would, you know, I mean, obviously when they took a city or they took, you know, they would eat of what was there, but then they would also find some gold and stuff and they could take that back home. Well, who gets that? How do you distribute that up? 
How do you distribute it up fairly? Well, you coin it. You, you put it into coins. You melt it down and you make coins that are all the same weight. And every soldier gets a coin. Now, that's not pay. That's the spoils. That is what we call shares. You know, when you would sign on to a, 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 a whaling ship, you, would, I mean, you still this is still the way it's done. You know, if you sign on to a fishing boat up in Alaska, you're going to get shares. You're going to get shares of what the take is. You know, they're going to catch so many cod or so many crab or whatever, and they sell it, they make money, and you get so many shares because you're a crewman. If you're a bosun's mate, you'll get more shares. If you're a captain, you'll get more shares. And this is after the owners of the ship get their shares. But how much you take home is dependent, a lot of times, on your shares as a member of the crew. Same way with the army. It wasn't pay, but when you got home, it was a successful campaign. They would coin this money in commemoration of that battle, hand it out. Uh, the generals would get most, captains would get a large share, and the soldiers would get a share as well. But it wasn't a salary. It was... so. But how did the army even march to go do these things? Well, somebody had to invest in this enterprise. You know, when when uh, George Washington organized the Virginia Regiment, who bought the uniforms? Who bought the guns? That the Virginia Regiment was going to use. Where'd they get the money to do that? Did Congress? Congress didn't have the money to do that. George Washington himself, with his own money, bought the uniforms and guns of the soldiers of the Virginia Regiment. Out of his own pocket. Other men did the same. They contributed. You know, people would send supplies. You know, I just told the story. During World War One. people still had this idea. And they they needed mechanical ambulances. 2,000 ambulances were purchased by donations of the people, for the people, and by the people. And enough money to pay the salary for the drivers of those ambulances, of those 2,000 ambulances, was all paid for by donations, not by the government, not by taxation. People don't even have that idea anymore because your society has changed. Here we come along and we say, got to change back. Just talk to somebody who works for the government yesterday. Uh, talked at length with him for the government of the state of Oregon. And he said that all the budgets have been cut. Fish and Wildlife, Forest Service, Federal Forest Service, State Forest Service, um, BLM. All their budgets are being cut all the way across the board. And this is not new. This has been going on for some time. So they don't have money to fight fires. We had these runaway fires. Uh, there were runaway fires uh, last year and they were the forests were saved, but not all the forests. Much of the federal forests were burned up. But private forests, uh, the local sawmill, I think about 64% of the logs in the local sawmill come off of the property owned by the people who own the sawmill. Their property didn't burn up. Why? Because the loggers went out there and protected the fire, (laughs) 
fire lines and stopped the fire so it did not burn up the private lands. Forest Service property burned up because the Forest Service was out there protecting and they are inadequate firefighters in many cases. I'm not going to pick on all of them because some of them work really hard. But the fact is, is they, a lot of the fires, like they, an old timer once said, we used to put these fires out. Well, we actually still do, but it's on private lands that they put them out. So, but you know, if the private people, we just had a fire here in our community last year and, uh, it almost burnt my son's house up, burnt up, uh, uh, storage shed there that they had. Uh, but I mean, it got that close to the house and, uh, uh, his father-in-law's house almost went, and uh, there were a few other structures. Most, the only structures that actually got burned up, we saved all the houses, were storage units and a little cabin that got burned up. That was right amongst the junipers, and it was it was an old little hauled-in cabin, uh, so it wasn't a great loss. But what saved it was the people. The people were saving these structures, but when they went to try to fight the fire on the BLM, they were barred. They weren't let on to the property to fight the fire. They showed up with cats and equipment. They're not let on to the BLM Forest Service ground to fight the fire. So, you know what they did? The citizens now have organized a private fire department, not on the tax rolls. It's already got lots of trucks and equipment, getting more equipment all the time. They start training uh first weekend of February, training the people themselves to be their own. We already have a volunteer fire department, but that's a structural fire department. It doesn't protect rangelands. They've started a rangeland district, and it's all volunteer, and it's all privately funded. They're not going by government. So we're actually going back towards the kingdom. We've seen this in process. Now, they're not necessarily joining congregations at His Holy Church, but, I mean, actually, there will be people in congregations at His Holy Church volunteering for that fire department, <laughs> uh, that volunteer fire department. But this is the way to go back. Well, we have to go back in lots of different areas of our society. And eventually, we'll have to go back in the ways of money because the money will collapse as well. Uh, but medicines, firefighting, defense... Home security, community watches, all these things. This is all kingdom stuff where we're going back and we're now investing in our neighbors and creating those bonds. You know, we had a fire a number of years ago that we saved all the houses. We had windows cracking in the houses and decks smoking on the houses, but the houses didn't burn because community people were stopping the fire. Not other people, community people were stopping the fire on private property. But when that was taking place, all the hatchets, all the local feuds stopped, pretty much. There was a few exchanges of words, but people settled that down pretty quick and everybody worked together pretty well. You know, three months later, they were back at their feud (laughs) in many cases. But the reality is there was a brief, you know, it's like those Christmas truces you saw in World War II between the Allies and the and the uh, German forces. That is part of the process, though. The more we do that, the more we can bury those hatchets and, and, and turn those swords into plowshares and become a fruitful nation. That's how you make America great again. It's going back to the principles of the kingdom. So anyway, we're going to talk about money changers next and uh, what money changers really were. And there were lots of money changers. 
And uh, But we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So the question was, uh, did the emperors actually loan money into circulation? Uh, that was the original question that spawned this this topic. Let's go back real quick. Rome's first minting of coins was a commemoration of winning a battle. The gold they used was usually the money that was taken in that battle. You defeated somebody, you took, you went around and you collected all their gold and all their silver. I mean, there were actually battles with the Jutes where the Jutes actually invaded Rome, conquered Rome. They were, they had an occupying army in Rome. They said, we'll leave, but you got to give us the weight of our king, our, our ruler, our commander in chief, because they really didn't have a king because they were organized also in this tens, fifties, hundreds and thousands. But the, their commander in chief, the, his weight in gold. And so they actually had him on a scale, at least the pictures draw that, where he's on one side of a scale and then they're piling up. Everybody's got to bring gold until they got enough gold to match his weight. And then he will gather up his men and leave. <laughs> so so this way you don't have to go through everybody's, you know, root cellar and, you know, dig up their yard and try to find out where they stash their gold. They they just bring it out. We need more gold to get rid of these guys. <laughs> and so anyway, that's that's the way they did it. And now he had his weight in gold. Now he could take some of that gold and pay to his generals and to his men. And, of course, they were also going to be taking grain and horses and anything else of value and clothing and everything else on their carts and take their carts. And they were stripping the city, but they, they had to bring to the leader. And as long as they didn't bring that gold that was going to equal the weight of the leader, they, they were going to still be there eating and pillaging and raping and everything else. So the, they quickly gathered the gold and gave it to them and the Jutes left. And so that's how they were doing it. Now, when you have to also remember, this is things that a lot of people don't. You were not likely, if you were a Roman centurion, you you were less than 50% likely to ever draw your sword in battle during the entire, your entire career. You, you were less than 50% likely to have ever drawn your sword in battle. Yet you say, well, they're Roman centurion, they're soldiers. Uh, they were fighting all the time. Why weren't they in battle all the time? Well, the, they weren't fighting all the time. The, the Roman centurions, they didn't invade uh, Spain to conquer it, you know, like Germany was doing. They went up there to mine gold. And uh, they they built uh, bridges. They built roads. They built dams they built canals they mined and they did hydraulic mining and mined a whole mountain out of existence to get the gold they had sluices that went for miles and miles and miles and that's why they went there and uh, most of they were not drawing the sword now they had a sword but you have to remember these this is a republic 
This is your local militias going up there to mine this mountain. And in order to do that, they had to have supplies. They had to have trade goods because they're going to trade with the local inhabitants that, you know, cut these trees and dig these trenches. And and the local inhabitants are great. Yeah, we'll dig these. We'll do this stuff. And they're not forcing them at the point of the sword. They'd be spending off their time fighting. They're making trade. Well, who... Who invested that original investment? Well, let's go back to the Temple of Janus. Temple of Janus was the temple of beginnings and ends. It was the Alpha and Omega of all financial uh, ventures. Even uh, if you were to get married, which is usually the uniting of two family wealth systems, you, you would go to the Temple of Janus because that was the beginning and end. But the Temple of Janus was just a space. You go in one door and out the other door. <laughs> so they actually had another temple that was a part of the Temple of Janus, but not at the Temple of Janus itself. And it actually had an altar, and you would bring funds there and money, and you would invest in projects like mining in Spain. And when you came back with all the gold that you brought back, you would pay off the investors plus interest. Plus, other men who went on this project, they invested their time, their energy, two years, three years, four years of time to go on this project. When they came back, they got that gold. Well, they had to have a way of dispersing those shares equally. Coinage. (laughs) They coined the money again. And where they go now... When you're coining money, you want to make sure that the process is done correctly, that the gold is the right amount. Uh, there was electrum, which was just a combination of gold and silver, and that might vary. Um, so you had to have people that were good at this, and that's why the Temple of Mineta was usually coining the, this money. And they would they would receive a fee for coining this money. I said we were going to talk about money changers. Money changers were experts in knowing the value of a variety of coins that were made by all kinds of different city-states and different locations and at different time periods. And and so they would change your coins from this nation into coins that people would locally accept when you're purchasing. Now, beyond that, there was the trade items and then of course you need to understand the golden calf and what that was all about and how do you you know Rome was so self-reliant that it didn't have to do a lot of foreign trade uh but it it eventually it did and so they had this other thing called bullion so anyway let's go back quickly to money in trade this bullion might be huge blocks of copper that were actually sometimes even difficult to lift uh, or bronze because somebody had smelted this down to a fairly pure st- state and this had a value in itself because this is a working commodity. Again, remember they were trading iron ore up in Norway and then they would take that iron ore and turn it into tools and bring back the tools along with other things. They might bring back other things that were unique to Norway you know, weavings and what have you, and then trade them down in some place else. And uh, they would go around to different places that would make the... And so this is where artisans came in. Because the better you produce something, the more likely the traders would give you a better price in trade goods. So 
you could actually put value in a thing, in a piece of copper, in a piece of iron, in a piece of bronze, by the way in which you manufactured something of value. And so it was just like those Indians chipping flint and making, you know, a knife or a spearhead or whatever. The better they were at this, the more artistic they were at this, the higher value it had in it. But it wasn't a value stamped on it, but it was a value stamped on it, but you could just see it. So anyway, that, that, so you had bullion, which was just the raw material, both commodity money and the artifact was a commodity money because it had a value beyond the material that made it up. And then you had coined money. Now, coin money got its special value from the fact that you might have to pay taxes or if you came into a harbor, you know, it might say so much gold to park your ship in this harbor. But there was a premium on gold of the realm. In other words, the coin of Caesar. So Caesar builds, puts up money to build a harbor, to build a dock. And now you want to dock there. They're going to give you a premium if you have Roman golden coins to pay the fee for docking at that harbor. So that's going to create an extra value in the golden coin that is not actually there in gold. And so that's what coining means, is that you actually say there's value here, because in in trade it is there, that actually is not there in reality. It's only there in trade. So as long as the Romans hold that harbor, it has value. But that idea is the beginning of token money. Token money is coins of a regular issue having a greater face value than the value their metal content contains. Now, you go back to Sparta, which I mentioned. Sparta had lead coins. Well, lead didn't have much value. Lead was easy to get. You could melt it down easily. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a difficult material to get, and it didn't have a lot of really good uses, although it did have uses. Unfortunately, people sometimes used it for plates <laughs> and poisoned themselves. But uh, anyway, the... That's token money, where you say it has a value that it doesn't actually have, but because you might have to pay taxes with it or a fee with it, the value is actually there. Eventually, they get to a point where they're saying it has a value it doesn't have, and they try to impose that value in commerce. But as long as you can get the minds of the people to accept the value. Token money, without a doubt, they say, is the money used throughout most of the world today is token money. Banknotes, coins, have only a tiny intrinsic value and they are simply tokens representing pounds or dollars, which are themselves, I'm quoting here, just names in the national consciousness, (laughs) the national imagination of people. Mostly not even any uh, longer tied to holdings in some national bank. So anyway, let's, let's see if we can answer this question as to what were they doing. When, when Caesar built a harbor, built a road, or loaned his army like Pompey did. Pompey sent his army at request of Aristobulus to Jerusalem. 
because Aristobulus and Hyrcanus were in a civil war. This is before Christ and before the first Caesar, because uh, Pompey was not Caesar. And uh, he came there, and Aristobulus sent him a bunch of gold. This wasn't a purchase. It was a donation to him personally. He sent his men personally to Aristobulus in appreciation of this gold that was sent to him. It was this, uh, I, I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it was like uh, a very art, artfully made uh, bush of leaves and everything else, all made out of gold. And it was sent to him. It was very pretty and very valuable. But he sent his army. Now, he didn't just send his army for that as payment. But that encouraged him to send his army. He was invited in there. And he's, he figures, we'll go in there and we'll we'll open up trade. We'll build harbors. We'll build roads. We'll build trade centers. We'll make money here. But we, we don't have to come in and fight a war. We come in and we just help the king who's having and put down this civil war. The problem was, is after he got there and his generals got there, he sent his generals first, then eventually he got there. He realized that Aristobulus' claim was not the best. And he's, he realized that Hyrcanus had a better claim. So he offered to back Hyrcanus. Hyrcanus would not accept his backing. Now, he's, his troops are already there. And it stopped the rebellion simply because of this. The troops are there and everybody said, okay, we're not fighting. And uh, But he felt like, well, wait a minute, this gold that you sent, was not a gift, it was a bribe. And Pompey was an honorable man. <laughs> so, that was very important. Romans, you'll, you'll hear that later in speeches by Mark Anthony. <laughs> but, uh, he gave, he gave that gold away. He gave that artifact away, uh, to temple to be distributed to the needy and to the poor in donations. And he wouldn't accept it. And he couldn't make a deal with Hyrcanus. But, Romans were there, and so they were building harbors, they were building roads, they were building, they were builders. The centurions were builders, and they were investing in uh, Israel, invited in, invited guests. And um, nobody was telling them to leave, because they brought peace. They were, they were appreciated, they weren't raping and pillaging. They were bringing law and order, as the policemen of the world. So, but, the fact is, is, they're going to expect to make money back from these things, their position there, from in trade and what have you, and charging fees and fines. Now, how did all this work in Rome? So this is, his troops were loaned there. His troops were, at this time, paid. They're not, they're, they're paid troops. They're not uh, the local militia because they're out being the policemen of the world. But they're paid by Pompey, fabulously wealthy man, Who's making money wherever he goes, you know, destroying the pirate ships of, uh, Libya. You know, that's, that's what he was doing just before he went to Jerusalem. In Roman times, organizations called Societates Publicanorum were formed that offered investments referred to as partes, or what we would now call shares. These organizations, I'm reading right out of historical accounts, these organizations offered partes to individuals to help the government with building or public structures and perform other community civic services. So if you were going to build the Temple of Moneta, you would offer Societatis Publicana 
Orum. Part, and people could buy shares in Moneta. Moneta will mint the gold that you brought out of those mines in Spain. And that gold would be turned into coins for a price. And Moneta, Juno Moneta, would make money on this service that they're providing. So, when Caesar put money into a temple to build a temple, whether it was the Temple of Saturn to keep your birth certificates or the Temple of Moneta to keep court records and uh, and mint coins, this was an investment. He was loaning that money into circulation. They would take that money and turn it into coins. Now, Caesar Augustus, first emperor of Rome, was also, I think he was the first emperor. I know it was around 44 uh, B.C. that they changed the law in Rome. Up till that time, because of the, they had thrown out the Tarquinian kings, we still have this law today in America. You could not have a living person on a coin or even on a paper note. The person had to be dead. It could not be a living person on a coin. Why did we have that law in the United States? Why did they have that law in Rome for almost 500 years? And in 44 BC, they made it legal to put a living person's face on the coin. And whose living person was that? Augustus Caesar. Why? Because he was financing uh, Moneta, He was financing these other temples that he was building. He was buying partes to the temples. He actually owned shares in the temple, including shares in the Temple of Janus. Temple of Janus, I said, had two gates. The gates were open during time of war. When there was no war, the gates were closed. Now, remember, there's another temple and altar connected to the Temple of Janus somewhere else. I can't remember exactly where it was. It was nearer the capital. And those doors were open all the time because they were accepting investments all the time. They were paying off shares all the time. But the actual area. Now, what went on in that area? Do you ever ever go to uh, uh, racetracks in in, uh, Great Britain, at least the way it used to be? I don't know how they do it now. And they would have bookies there. And they would be holding up fingers and they would, I mean, it looks like the stock exchange, you know, where they're giving you odds on betting and all this kind of stuff. Well, that's a little bit like that area there in the middle of the Temple of Janus. And people are keeping track of investments. You want to invest in this military expedition, which might march right through those gates before it marched out of Rome like a parade and everybody would get all excited and they say oh look at these guys in all these armors and they're all shiny and they're heading off to defeat the Gauls and they're going to make a lot of money and bring back gold I want a piece of the action I want to buy a part of the action and they're buying shares well who has the big share well of course it's Gustus and you're buying into those shares and uh, so this is how their economy was operating. So, yes, he loaned money into circulation. Yeah, he paid his soldiers. And so a lot of money came into circulation by paying his soldiers. Where did he get the coin? He got it from the Temple of Moneta. Well, who invested in the Temple of Moneta? The Societatis Publicana of Orum. Well, it was the people who built the Temple of Moneta. 
<laughs> and they were going to make money when Moneta was making money, which is where we get the word money is from Moneta, which was the goddess of Moneta. But you know, when people first started studying this stuff back in the 20s and, and in the 1800s, they were thinking religion was what you think about God. So they were all caught up in the fact that the, these temples like uh, Juno Moneta was uh, where it was supposed to be two gods there. Uh, I can't even remember the other name of the other god, but it's a, it's a name like Moneta, but it's a little longer and harder to pronounce. These two gods owned one coin. Well, how do two gods, this is where we started, so we're, we're getting close to the end. How do two gods own one coin? <laughs> they have a vested interest in that coin. <laughs> it has a dual purpose. You know, uh, the fact is, soldiers, when they're in the heat of battle, they're not thinking about the money they're going to make <laughs> in the heat of battle. But if you don't have, if there's no profit in them, a lot of them won't go to war. Uh, early republics went to war when they were attacked. They didn't go to war to make money. And that was one of the things in Israel's republic is that you weren't to go to wage war for spoils. Uh Even... And this is a tradition we see all the way back with Abraham when he went to get his nephew back after his nephew had been captured with the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, he sent, he, he was going to go defeat this army that came and took a spoil, including his nephew. And his, all the other people he had set up altars from, and we explained some of that recently in uh, other broadcasts, what was actually going on with those altars. They came as allies, not because they were paid. They came because they backed Abraham. Abraham's going, we're going to back Abraham. Because we see those people as a menace to us as well as other people. And because they're robbing a nearby city-state. And because, I don't know what all their reasons were. But they were willing to risk their life to go and fight these guys. And out of loyalty, out of hospitality to Abraham. Because of what Abraham had done for them which has to do with golden calves and everything else, which most of you do not understand unless you've been listening regularly. Can you imagine getting this information out to everybody? But they went, Abraham said they could take a spoil. But he would not. He would not even take a buckle. He's not going to profit from war. And uh, and today, people profit from war. But Americans are losing. The people are losing because they've already lost what made their country great, which was the fact that they used to be seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And now they're seeking comfort and ear-tickling pastors and ministers and their own imagination. And they have believed a lie. So, yes, the money was loaned into circulation in many ways. And yes, the money was put out there in order to get a profit back. Even the welfare was the table of a ruler. If you eat at the table of the ruler, they get to draft your sons and daughters. They get to take and take and take and take and take because you're eating at their table. In order to make sure that you were one of those eating at their table, they made you register birth certificates. Registration of novation, registration of when you received your toga or when you began to put your your uh, income 
on the altars of these temples. And this is what Christians wouldn't do because they had another God. They had another king, one Jesus Christ. And they looked in another direction for their health and welfare. And it was towards the church that was uh, tens, hundreds, and thousands. And until then, peace be upon your house and may God be with you. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.